Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show floor at NAM 2020. We are podcasting live from the show floor here in Anaheim. My name is Chris Lose. I'm the columnist at LD at Large and the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting. I am sitting here with Sooner Ruthier, the show designer, creative director, and producer of Sooner Ray Creative. And now, Parnelli Lighting Designer of the Year, award-winning lighting designer. And uh, I'm so happy to have you here. This has been great. I'm happy to have you. And uh, we started this conversation about a week ago in Nashville. I came out to see you there. And it went so well that I asked you that we would come and we could finish this and kind of put some of this on, uh, on podcast so that other people could listen to all of the wise words that you have sooner. Well, thanks. Thank the you only so difference much. is that we don't have any alcohol in front of us. I'm, but it is like 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. This so. is the quietest <laughs> time of the entire NAM convention. I'm kind of loving it. This is so nice. Yeah, it's good. Uh, the last few days, this thing has been going every five minutes. It looks super familiar, by the way. Uh, so what you guys can't <laughs> see is just 20 feet away from us, there is a, a, a drum kit that goes in a circle. It goes upside down. It looks exactly like <laughs> the visionary creation of a well-esteemed person that, I'm, that I know. <laughs> the 360 from Motley Crue's uh, tour in 2000, what's it, 12 maybe? Yeah. That was the 2012 one. It's flattering, guys. Seriously. It actually is super <laughs> flattering. And uh, on, to be honest, like it was an SGPS engineering feat, not necessarily, you know, it's a very collaborative process for us to make that that. Well, not that exact one, but the one that Tommy rode with Robert Long and Eric Pierce from SGPS and myself. Uh, and Tommy, obviously. The sincerest yeah. form of respect is... Yes. Flattery. Uh, it's flattery. It's fl oh, wait. I, messed I blew that one completely. That's okay. The sincerest form of flattery is copycat? Is, uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pseudo philosopher. Imitation is the there best you go. form of flattery. There you go. There you go. Look at us. It's beautiful. I love it. It's actually way more compact and like cleaner. So it's, it's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've, you've already worked out all the kinks. Yeah. yeah there you go. It's perfect. Um, anyway. So the, the way, the path of the conversation started was that I've always had a lot of respect for you in the fact that you are well-respected in the industry for being, I want to use the word demanding in the most respectful way. You have a vision and you know how to get all the people involved and you know how to make it happen and you are still lovable. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> people still, people have a lot of respect for you and you're a, a genuinely nice person. Oh, thanks. And I know that Sweet. that's a, that's a really tough balance, uh, in our industry to be demanding and still have people want to help you. Do you run into that a lot? I mean, I get, I don't really notice these things. Um, I guess I just, a lot of it comes from like, you have to know who you're designing for and what, like what the the parameters are, because if you just know that ahead of time and you can fit it in within that mold, then it's pretty easy to make people jump on board with your ideas, right? Because as long as it can fit within the mold of what, what they're asking for in budget and truck space and everything, then you can usually 
get them to, uh, to come on board pretty easily. You're generally brought into the design process fairly early in the... Sometimes. In the creative. Is that... Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. It depends. I mean, this, these days, the timeline is insane. Like, people are trying to do more and more and more in shorter timelines. And it is... It's, it's I mean, frankly, annoying. You know, it's, it takes, like, however many months for somebody to write and create and produce an album... You know, that's like a lot of creativity and love and dedication and vision that like gets poured into writing and producing an album. So when you're producing a live show that, you know, is going to go on the road and make you a lot of money, doesn't it make sense to pour that amount of time into creating the live show? Like it's, it's important. And these days it seems like we get asked to put together proposals like two weeks before, you know, a it's due and then it has to be built in a month and then sent on the road. It's, it's pretty ridiculous. So, but yes, if <laughs> that sounds very self-fulfilling, whereas <laughs> you come up and you create a miracle one time and they, they, they ask you for a real solid like sooner. We're in a really bad place. We need, fi- we need you to create magic in five days. Yeah. Can you do it? Sometimes I have to say no, unfortunately, actually. Yeah, it's important. But These th- days you have to say no. If something like that is happening, because yeah, yeah, but we, you've done it once, and they'll be like, "Well, sooner you did it. You created magic in <laughs> I don't on think a dime I've ever before." Created something in five days. <laughs> That'd be pretty crazy, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember going to see the Imagine Dragons. I think it was a promo tour or something, ah, and you were just on Southwest. a total hamstring, and you made some really magical looks on what was I believe it was pipe and bass yeah. and some. Some X4 bars, and uh, well, I, don't, I don't remember what they were. I, yeah, there was a bunch of um, Martin Septrons, um, and I think we had probably some Mythos or something on the floor, Clay Packy. But, um, I mean, a lot of that came from Jesse Lee Stout as well. He's a creative director. Um, I worked with him on Imagine Dragons, and then we just did Muse, which won the Parnelli Award. Congratulations. Um, thank you. That's insane. I'm still stunned by it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, a lot of that is also if direction from him, right? Because he's, I mean, he's in, insanely creative and also very collaborative. So, like, he's okay if I jump in and say, hey, I know you really want to do this, but what if we do this instead? And, you know, sometimes he's like, no, I want to do it my way. And sometimes he's like, oh, yeah, that's even better. Like, why don't I think of that? So, yeah, but thank you. That was a with, good one. With the collaboration, do you often find that you have to compromise more or do you benefit more from a from a good collaboration let's let's use jesse benefit a hundred and fifty thousand percent like that is absolutely collaboration is key and necessary i mean especially for my process i have got to collaborate with people it's just nobody sees and hears music the same way right agreed so you know my way is not always necessarily right and you know, a creative director's way is not necessarily always right, but everybody's got a certain vision that they want to tackle and they want to make come to life. And as long as there's like a clear communication line and everybody is thinking about, you know, the end result and all ideas are welcomed, then it usually is better. Listening to you drop a truth bomb like that (laughs) and made it sound so effortlessly (laughs) is, is inspiring because I used to think that I was right. I used to think like, well, no, I, I went to school for this. I've seen this happen before. I'm right. And I'm going to have to convince you that I'm right. And 
I think that you have to get to a certain place in your career where you can just be more humble and express your humility and like, well, maybe I'm not right. Yeah, it's a thing. It's important. I mean, you know, you're, you're creating art for somebody who's going to be on stage and have to, it's going to go around the globe and they're going to have to be in front of it and they're the ones that are performing with it. You know, like, it's not, I'll go in for however many weeks, put it together, and then I leave. And I come back and visit every once in a while and say hello, drink some wine, chill out. But, you know, in the end, the person that's on stage is the one that has to be the person performing within that space, you know, or the people have to be performing within that space. So they need to own it and love it and, and be comfortable with it. So... So you ascribe to the philosophy that the customer is always right. I mean, yeah. Right, yeah. Well, there's, defi- like, there's definitely moments where I, you know, if I have an idea that m- may be different from what the creative director or the artist on stage was envisioning, you know, I'll always make my case, you know, in the nicest way possible. Like, I'm not going to, like, force upon them, like, you're wrong, this is this is the way it needs to be. You know, it, I'll always like have a good conversation with them and try to explain, you know, the reason why I think X should be Y and Y should be Z. But, you know, in the end, like if they're like, no, this is not the way I see it. I see it this way. Then, you know, okay. Well, I tried to put my idea out there, but. When your clients <laughs> come to you with an idea that sounds logistically impossible <laughs> do you default yes or do you default no um, usually it's a let me come back to you on that one and then walk away think about it and then see if there's a way to make it happen or a way that can either water it down a little bit just to like be like okay this is how we can fit this on your stage this is how we can make this happen this is how we can bring it to life how do you feel about this idea so and you default was, maybe. I default maybe. I default usually, let's just have a think about this. Consult all the people that could potentially make it happen and then lay out the parameters. So Let's say that somebody's come to you with a project that you are super excited about from your core. You put together all the ideas. You make it all happen. You, you can envision it. You come up with a budget. You present it, and they're like, mm, No. Do you ever have to go to bat? Yeah. Yeah. Back to the drawing board. Oh, back to the drawing board. You're like, well, let's see what I can do to... Yeah. Well, it's all about, like, I mean, it's, it's hard because every process is different, right? So one of the things that managers seem to really love doing is doing a designer shootout these days. It's like, let's just get 10 proposals and pick which one we like best. To me, that is like, like, I, I, frankly, I... I try not to do those anymore because what's the point? It's, you know, if you're going to commission a piece of art for your wall, you're going to, you know what artists you want to put up there. So oh, that's a great point. You go and you, you're not going to ask like, okay, let's just say Salvador Dali to like do five different paintings to put on, obviously he's not alive anymore, but you're not going to ask him to go put like five different paintings together and then just be like, mm, I don't like that one, that one, that one. I like this one. I'm going to go with that one. You don't do that. That's not the way it works. Um, It's also like there's a lot of time and energy and creativity that gets put into putting that proposal together. So I greatly prefer when a manager comes 
or a creative director comes to me and says, hey, I really want you to work on this project. Let's put together a proposal together. This is what we're looking for. And, um, and then I can speak to the artist directly and say, okay, what do you, what do you love in life? What, what fashion brands are you wearing these days? What art do you love? Do you have some favorite movies or some, who's, whose show have you seen lately that you just were like really inspired by? Like, just ask all of those questions. Do you have a Pinterest account? <laughs> can we share some <laughs> Pinterest boards together? Any of that stuff. Like, if I can collaborate with them and actually tailor make a design to what their goal is and what their vision is, then it's, then you don't necessarily have to go back to the drawing board and continue to draw over and over and over again for them. Sometimes you do, but you know, they're pleased, right? You know, make it, you also want to make the best show possible for yourself in a way. Like you want to be sort of selfish about that. Like, and I don't mean about like for yourself. I mean, like you want to make the best show for the artist to be happy with your own work. Does that make sense? You want yeah. to feel pride, of course. You want to feel pride, yeah. So, are the are the days of unlimited budgets numbered? Does that does that exist anymore? People were just I mean, like, I want this at any cost. I I've want ten thousand drones. Never had that make happen. I I wish that I could say that I've had the accounts to say endless budget, do whatever you want. We don't care how much it costs. But I have never in my life experienced that. That's a unicorn. So, that is a unicorn for sure. No, I've only heard uh, I've only heard myths about it. Yeah. I've never seen one myself either. Yeah, I know. That's not to say that they don't come and ask you to present unicorns. They're like, give us... I know. If there are any unicorns out there, I would love for you to come chat with me. I'll give you a business card. I'd love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Please, give me an endless budget. <laughs> One of the ones that I've seen online that I didn't get a chance to see was I. it was The weekend. And I know that you collaborated on that one yeah. with, uh, I believe it was S. Devlin? Yes, she's such a badass. Yeah. Oh, yes. If, if S. Devlin is listening right yeah. now, uh, full respect. Full respect. She's amazing. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that one. Also with Lamar, um, the weekend's longtime bestie slash creative director. Uh, it's a big collaborative thing with him as well. I would imagine S. was one of those people that would just come up with these ideas that just sounded logistically impossible. Yeah. And then you would have to work with her and say, what, what can we logically do? Yeah. Well, the best part about that one in particular is I, I was doing lighting design on that one. Um, so Ez and, um, and Lamar, they were the, the production designers, creative directors. So, you know, they worked very hard with the production manager, Rob DiCellio, to um, put together everything with Tate. And, like, they came up with all of the engineering and the way to make it happen and the way to make it work. And then I just sort of was like, I'd really like lights here, here, and here, and sort of drew it out. And so it was pretty easy to, for me to jump in. What was the first moment when they said, well, we're going to have a spaceship looking arena size spaceship that we're going to tour with? Yeah. You had to have seen the scope of that from the first time. And you're like, yeah. that. It made sense to me, I guess. You're, because, not, you're not scared at all. No, I, no, it was fine. I mean, because he his star had risen so much and so quickly and and I mean from the first show that I ever did with with the weekend I think it was like 2012 like tiny club in Montreal um, like he, they always pushed the envelope they were always the people that would you know they always wanted to go out and be bigger than life no matter what size scale they were working on right so like the very first show I ever did for him which I think was his third live performance ever 
we had lights. Like we, we brought out gear and I think a projection screen and they had f- content for me to put into the show and everything. And, you know, at that level, like it's kind of unheard of. You don't really, unless you're building it out of your garage or something, you don't really see somebody doing their third show ever with production. So that sort of like sets the tone for his career in the, the live production world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and their team is really good about collaborating with different designers as well. You know, so they've like, since I started working with them in 2012, I worked with Alex Reardon. Um, gosh, Roy Bennett obviously does it now. Like they they change they change designers quite a bit. So it's nice. would you consider both of them mentors? I would absolutely consider. Well, I mean, I consider a lot of people mentors, right? Because I learn from so many people, even on a daily life. Like, um, I mean, as for sure. Her is a mentor, like absolutely. Like I learned so much about how to take a live production space in an arena and extend it past that like fourth wall perspective. And on that show, right? Like she had this huge long thrust that went into the audience, which is perfect for able to perform on. And then that huge starship over top, like that's, I mean, I've definitely seen shows that go past that line, but not the way she did it. Not the way she did it for sure, yeah. So you'd add S to the the mentorship yeah, program I mean, of Suter? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like, she'd probably be like, huh? <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely learned a lot from her. Yeah. Uh, do you get a lot of really odd, oddly specific requests or restraints from any of your clients? Like, I know you're coming up with Coldplay very soon, and they have, yeah. they've made it very clear that they're going to be very demanding on yeah. their, their green, their eco-friendly factor. Yeah. I would imagine you get a lot of that where, like, hey, we... We want the world, but also no magenta. Or oh, I mean, I had that exact request. Rage Against the Machine, Tom Morello said absolutely none of that, like pink, row, whatever that color. I'm like, magenta? He goes, yeah, none of that. That actually happened 2007. Yeah, that, yeah. Ke- that continues to come up for it's some okay. reason. Hey, it happens. Like, nobody sees or hears music the same way, so, you know... I and, keep uh, saying that, but it's not even like a like a no green. Like yeah. so that's a that's not that's my least favorite color. I love color. the color green. It's your least favorite color. So I love that color. I love green. It's there's a, there's a time and a place. Yeah, you just have to make sure your artist is lit properly. <laughs> or maybe green is the maybe green is the vision. Maybe you're either supposed to be green, like a nice harsh magenta coming in from the other side. Do like a nice cool. You're a visionary. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> what, what's, what are some of the most interesting limitations that you've received? Other than, I'm the, no magenta seems to be a running thing. but Yeah, it uh, is a running thing, right? Which sucks because it's a great like, color, too. I mean, I hate the color pink. I can't stand the color pink. But um, you No know, front light, no haze. No, no front lights a lot. I mean, Tommy never really liked spotlights, which was fine it's just but he's such a damn good drummer and everybody really wants to watch him so you have to figure out a a different way of lighting him up on the kit um yeah I don't know that's a hard one for me to answer because I I I can't really think of any specifics usually and usually it's like if if that's like a restriction you just move past it okay you know so I might have just like forgotten (laughs) what they are do you kind of have to take your your artist glasses off sometime and put on your employee glasses and you're like, well, I was asked to do that. I'm going to do that even though I don't fully agree. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. But like I said, if you ever have a really good reason for doing something, you always want to make sure that your point is made. Because sometimes it can hurt 
you know, the person on stage in some way that they're not realizing, right? So, um, for example, if they say they want the audience lights on the entire show as bright as possible, and the audience is like putting their hands up in front of their eyes because they can't see anybody on stage, like, then maybe, okay, like, we need to change this because we can't see you, bro, or girl. Uh, to, so to give that co that comment some reference, <laughs> when I was uh, over some drinks, I was crying in my beer to Sooner over a recent project that I had worked on where the lead singer wears sunglasses and wanted the house lights on the entire time so that they, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it gender you specific, keep it. Yeah, there you go. gender non-specific, so that they could see the... Uh, the audience the entire time and they wanted to see even the farthest person because that person got the vibe from the crowd and I had to make a decision if I could put my ego aside and give that person what they wanted or if I had to go to bat and say no that's a bad decision and I, I had to console with sooner <laughs> I'm like hey I did that please don't think of me as the guy who <laughs> leaves the house lights on for the whole show because it, it, that wasn't my artistic decision. That was yeah. what I got paid to do. But that's the thing is like everybody has those moments, you know, there's definitely things that I've done or, or had to do or like decisions I've made that I'm like, why the hell did I do that? <laughs> Honestly. Or like, oh man, why, why does it look like I made that decision? And I, I'm so bummed because I don't want that to be my, you know, the way somebody sees the show, like that bums me out. But you know what? Everybody had every single person in this business has those moments and you just move past them and just, Hey, it's a thing. It happens. Like, why did I wear bell bottoms in high school? I definitely wear bell bottoms in high school. <laughs> I think that they were actually in style then, but I'm not sure. But you know what I mean? Like, why did I look like a walking thrift store in high school? Or it's just things like that. Like, do you ever feel the need to justify decisions like that? You're like, hey, I wore bell bottoms because yeah. because Lindy no. Lou also wore bell bottoms and I wanted to be like Lindy Lou. I just liked wearing thrift store clothing and I think it's great. I actually might go back to wearing it. I wear your, <laughs> your granddad's clothes. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to wear all my grandfather's. I did actually pick shit out of, sorry, swearing. I picked stuff out of my grandfather and grandmother's closets for sure. Yeah, you're gonna have to beep that out. Sorry. Is that how you got into the industry? <laughs> Everybody saw you wearing the the thrift store maybe. clothes. Like That's maybe you need was. to be in the yeah. liberal arts. Yeah, maybe that would have that might have been it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question, actually. How did you get into the industry, sooner? Oh my gosh, such a crazy roll, uh, road. Um, I like grew up in the middle of nowhere, Vermont, actually. But now, awesome Nick Whitehouse has a house up there in the same town that I was born and raised in, strangely enough. And it's great because now I can go and drink wine with him when I go home to see my parents. But I digress. Um, tiny town called Newport, Vermont. Population 5,000. I think we had three stoplights at the time I was, I was growing up. Um, and I used to like do musical theater. So I'd like ride my bike over to the high school in the summer times and do summertime and do um, just like build scenic with like the scenic person there. I just remember like cutting, like taking Coke bottles, like liter Coke bottles and like cutting them up. And then the top of it with the cap, you'd keep the cap on it. And then you'd like cut little petals and peel them back. And like we made flowers for the whiz. It was cool. I'd like, I will never forget that. But like, that's how I started it. I started in theater. And then I was like, I was saw my first concert when I was a senior in high school. 
And what was it? Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness Tours, Smashing Pumpkins. Smashing Pumpkins. Lars Upton. Uh, he, I consider him a mentor because that's the first concert I ever saw in my life. And I was obsessed with the way the lighting moved and changed color. And it was like, I always, I always hear music in color and shape. I always have, and I always will. So like, I just saw the way he was like making the lights move to my favorite band's music. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So I went um, to my parents and I said, I want to be a lighting person for bands on the road. And they're like, uh, I don't think that you can make money doing that. That's not a career. <laughs> you have good grades. Why can't you go be a doctor or a lawyer? I'm like, I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I want to be a roadie. And I didn't, I actually never even really knew the term roadie at that point. I was just like, this is what I want to do. I want to do it. Um, so I ended up like going to see some shows and actually one of them was at this tiny club in Montreal where I ended up like full circle 2012 doing the weekend, those three sold out shows I was talking about a little while ago. Um, and I'd never been in that club until then. So it was crazy, but I used to go up and do these, see these shows and my parents are like, why don't you just go to a liberal arts school and like figure it out and then you know, you can, they were hoping that it would grow out of me. Like I wouldn't, I would change my mind. Um, and so they had me go to this really tiny school in Northern Vermont called Johnson State College, uh, 45 minutes from my house. Uh, and it was the best thing ever because I was behind the lighting console in the theater every day. Uh, and Jan Herter, another mentor, he was the professor there, the technical director, taught me so much, allowed me to learn so much. Um, and then somehow a lighting, regional lighting company came to do support for strange folk in our theater. It's a hippie noodley band, kind of like fish. Uh, and they brought in, they brought in gear, they brought in lighting and, and sound. And, um, and at that time I was such a nerd about lighting that I had memorized the gel books, the Roscoe and the Lee gel books. I, I knew all the color numbers. And so the lighting guy that came in there, Brian Clark, another mentor, uh, he had labeled his console, like, instead of it saying red, green, blue, yellow, it was like R27, R80, L139. And so he's standing up there and he's like trying to focus these park hands. He's like, you want to run the lights for me? And I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. And he's, and he's like, ha, 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 they're never, she's never going to know what to put up. And he's like, put up the green fader. Okay, Lee 139. And he like stopped and he was like, what is how do you know this? And I said, I'm a nerd. Like, this is what I want to do. What you're doing is what I want to do. So I said, I want to follow you. What do I do? Where do I go? And so like the next weekend, my friends and I drove to like Boston College and saw Busta Rhymes or something and helped them load out. And then the following weekend was like Ziggy Marley at Dartmouth. And I actually got to run the board and he saw that I had timing and like, and that was it. Like I interned with them for three months and then ended up working for them in the summer job and then done. And then from there, it was just like, talk to people, network, smile, go above and beyond. Like if an audio guy's got a cable that's the last cable on the deck and you're already packed up and in the truck, get that cable, pick it up, wrap it and hand it to the audio guy. You know, that was it. And I just did that. And I continued to do that even in my touring career. Help the sound guy pack up the desk. If your friend of house is done before him, you know, pack up the snake. Oh, the feeder's not done. Great. Find some stagehands coil the feeder up, even if that's not your gig. Do it. It's a team sport when you're a roadie. <laughs> and in nowhere, Vermont, you had to, you had to travel to, for that amount of yes. networking, right? You couldn't just do it oh in your... Oh my God, if my parents knew. Oh, 
I was like, this school was like three and a half hours from Boston, like crazy distance for like somebody, like an 18 year old with a little, I had a little 1991 Geo Prism and I would drive in the middle, like after the shows, I would finish loadout and I would get in that Prism and I would drive back to school in the middle of the night through these, you know, it's just highways in Vermont and then these secondary roads in Vermont to get, to, so I could get to class at 9 a.m. on a Monday. This is crazy. The stuff I saw on those roads in the middle of the night, <laughs> like, it's just like, surprised <laughs> that I didn't get like hit by a moose or something. I don't know. But yeah. Uh, it's probably better that your parents didn't know uh, yeah, at the time. Yeah, probably good. Yeah. I hope they don't listen to this. Uh, were they supportive? outside of what they knew and what they didn't know? They didn't understand. So, because I grew up, like, I did a lot of modern dance and, like, like I loved lighting dance for a very long time. That was my thing. It, and at Emerson College, which I finished my degree up at Emerson. And at Emerson College, I did a lot of dance, a lot of theater, and they loved that. They thought that was cool. They're like, okay, you can, maybe, maybe you can go do Broadway someday. But um, when I started touring... I instantly entered the world of rock and roll. Uh, and my the first artist I ever toured with as a lighting designer director was uh, Chevelle. Very good friends uh, out of Chicago. We love them to pieces. They're like family to us. Um, and the first time my parents came to see a Chevelle show, they were just like, what are you doing with your life? Like, you know, because they didn't understand the music. And like, we all understand the music. We love Chevelle. Like, Love Chevelle. Um, and then, you know, the next one I did, I think, was like, uh, oh, gosh, I don't even remember the next one they came to. Maybe Seven Dust. And we love Seven Dust. <laughs> Seven Dust is like one of those underrated, heavy rock bands yeah. on the planet. They're insanely good. And, you know, they're also really good friends. Like, And my parents just didn't understand that music. But then, like, I got, you know, I went out with Rihanna. And they're like, oh, okay, now we understand. And then I went out with Motley Crue, and they're like, oh, we don't understand. And then I went out with Bon Jovi, and they're like, now we really understand. <laughs> so it's like, it depended on who, like, they knew musically. They didn't understand, like, they did not understand the heavy rock world, but they understood, like, we know who Bon Jovi is. We're proud of you. <laughs> it's like, and this is not my parents' voice at all, by the way. My mom has, like, a French-Canadian <laughs> accent. We are proud of you, Sooner. Nice dub. Like, you know, it's not that thick either. Sorry. <laughs> this is the third time we came to see Bon Jovi. We love it. <laughs> their support was based on their knowledge of today's radio. They're like, well, yeah, we basically. know Bon Jovi, so yeah. you're probably doing well. Yeah. My parents and my dad never really listened to a lot of music either. Like, there's a very limited amount of music that he would listen to. He li we used to listen to a lot of talk radio and, like... Music from like the sixties, the fifties, like that's what we would listen to. So he didn't, he didn't really listen to a lot of modern stuff. Okay. Yeah, and I don't like my mom was. She was always like singing in the house, but I don't re really remember them listening to a lot of music. Um, my grandfather played accordion. Like we would listen to him play accordion. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, Sounds very French Canadian. Yeah, yeah. but they're super. I mean, now they're like. They totally understand it, and they're they're super proud. Which if, is nice. if you were up at the podium <laughs> at the Parnellis, would you? Oh, I missed it. Would you? Uh, would you say thanks to my parents? Of course. Absolutely. For allowing me to be crazy and do what I'm doing. Hell yeah. 
you for Aww, sure. Oh, that's yeah, sweet. I know. I love them. Uh, if you were right. at the, who else would you thank at the, oh, if man. you were at the podium? Goodness. Jesse Lee Stout, for sure. Creative director extraordinaire. One of my favorite, like, creative collaborators. I love him to pieces. Uh, Aaron Luke for operating it, who was also nominated for a Parnelli for operation. Um, George Reeves. Um, sorry, I'm totally going to say this. He should have been nominated for production manager of the year because that man is one of the best production managers I've ever worked with in my He's life. He's a great guy. Absolutely. Hands down. Like, yes. Unbelievable. Um, uh, obviously, upstaging, like the entire lighting crew, which from upstaging, Seth Kahn, like all of them, they were, they were such a great team. Um, I mean, Muse for creating such incredible music that is so lighting friendly, you know? Absolutely. Goodness, we had fun programming that stuff. I'm uh, totally not jealous. Oh my gosh. When I found out that I got that gig, I stood up and screamed, and everybody thought that I was getting murdered because I was so excited. <laughs> so, yeah, they've always been one of my favorites. So, yeah, it's good. Do, do you find your gratefulness to be one of your main attributes when you're out on the road, being thankful and appreciative? I mean, I like to think so. I think it's important to be grateful. You know, you're getting a chance and an opportunity to, like, do this great stuff, like, create this really cool art, and people get to see it. Like, your art is... I mean, your art is seen by so many people around the planet at that point. It's cool. You should yeah. definitely be grateful. It's been right? said that if you love your job, you, you never work a day right. in your life. And I'm so grateful that we have the ability to do what we do. Cause yeah, I just wish I could teleport because it would be way Ooh. easier. If I could teleport, then I would love it even more. We're working it's on been it. a rough work of, week of flying, so... Yeah. Well, we're so happy that you were able to <laughs> partially teleport yourself here and get uh, get down here. <laughs> on a single-engine prop plane on boutique <laughs> air from Dodge City, Kansas to Los Angeles. Dodge City is really cool, by the way. <laughs> Saw lots of really fun Wild West stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when I had told other people that I was having this conversation with you online, Andrew Drury reached out and he said, what oh. is the best approach to break out of the operator programmer role and into the designer role. How were you able to make Ooh. that jump? Because I know yeah. you had, uh, you'd been programmer operator for quite a while. Yeah. And finally it just didn't fit you anymore. You had kind of broken out of that mold. Yeah. I found that I wasn't really designing as much. Like every time I took a tour, I ended up having to say no to some design work because I didn't have time to get it done and go to rehearsals. So, I mean, for me, like, I started in the role of operating and designing and it sort of grew into, it just sort of grew into, hey, um, I know I did your last tour as your operator and I would love to design it again, but I'm actually not available to come out on the road with you. So can I design it and can I put one of my buddies out there that's really good and like, we'll take this and grow it like it's his own or her own. Um, but also there was a point in time where I made a hard decision to not tour anymore as an operator. And I definitely had a slower year that year, but you know, with any great growth comes a bit of a step back and like looking at what your situation is and, and realizing that it's okay to step back for a second, maybe not make as much money, maybe not create as many things, but to grow from there. And like, usually I find that if I, if I step back for a second and allow myself to just like understand the environment and the, where I'm at in life, um, 
the best, best opportunities start popping up within months. So that's exactly what happened. I stepped back in 2014, chilled for a second, and then 2015 was absolutely insane for me. So. It wasn't a logical decision then for you. It was a, uh, it was a decision made of necessity. Yeah, like, it was I just don't time. fit in this role anymore. I mean, I still fit in this role. I actually got to operate Coldplay last night. It's cool. So I was like sitting there running like Viva La Vida, like hitting all the bump buttons. I was like, oh, I'm running lights for Coldplay. This is so cool. And I'm only doing it because Graham Feast, their, their lighting director, is, is currently on another project. But I'm like, Graham, I'm going to keep this safe for you. I love you and I want to work with you again. So here we go. I'm going to operate for you. And then we're going to come back and we're going to collaborate and design and operate the show together. It's going to be the best. So thank you, Feasty, for letting me sit in your shoes or step in your shoes for a second. But I, for a second there, I was like running Viva La Vida and I'm like, oh, Oh my gosh, I'm burning lights and calling spots for Coldplay. This is super cool. <laughs> so, I really love my job. You're still, you're still just a child. I'm such a kid. <laughs> it's fun. You can, like you hit the buttons and you're like, ooh, something's happening on the other end. It was, it's not time coded, by the way. Coldplay is not time coded. It's not time coded. There is still <laughs> something so primitive about our fascination with hitting buttons that make something else happen <laughs> really far away. It's hard for me to not make the sound effects. Like I have the headset on <laughs> and like, I'm like, I've got the mic latched on to talk to spots. And in my head, I'm just like, yes, boom, 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 boom. And, but like, but like, <laughs> and if I start actually vocalizing that, then the spot ups are going to be like, who the hell is this? Also, Patrick Dearson was also on the other headset. So then I would have been really embarrassed because Patrick would have been like, who? <laughs> What happened to Suter's is crazy. <laughs> Maybe he already thinks I'm crazy. Love that dude. He's okay. really good at making pew, 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 pew sounds, pew, pew, pew. too. He know, loves them. He does love those sounds. Maybe he would have appreciated it if I was making those noise. Oh, gosh. Anyway. <laughs> that's yeah, that's what you fun. get for censoring yourself. You yeah. should really be... You should be Anybody who can handle full sooner, you should give it the full sooner. There you go, Patrick. Next time I do a show with you, you're going to hear pew, pew every time I hit a button. <laughs> that must have been really hard for you because jumping out of programmer role where you know you have a paycheck lined up. Yeah. I still go. love programming. Yeah. And so, yeah, you still love it. You still know that you mm -hmm. can do it. You know that it's a feasible Yeah role that you can do, but something in you is like, no, I have to take that next step. I'm, at, I'm actually at this crossroads now and everybody that I work with is like, they just shake their head. Like, what are you doing? So, because like, especially this month, this month has been a little, is a little rough because there's, it's not rough. It's really cool. I've got great opportunities. We just put Justin Moore on the road. Um, so Aaron Luke programmed that because I had to bounce here, like back and forth from Dodge City to here. I took that boutique air flight three times, single engine prop plane, not fun. Um, but had to bounce back and forth to do Coldplay. And then um, like we have two more shows tomorrow and the following day. And then I've got to go, I'm going to do the Lumineers in Asheville. We're going to put that on the road. So, but it's just definitely been like back and forth, like from one to the other. And I'm so damn lucky to have that opportunity, by the way, like so damn lucky. But at this point, like I would rather program every single one of them myself because I love programming so much. It's my favorite thing to do, but I can't do it because when I leave rehearsals for Justin Moore, like then nothing's getting 
done. So that's why Aaron's there. Aaron has the vision. He's he's very creatively minded. He understands what he needs to do. I give them like a, I do like a Google sheet with all the direction in it, and then they just take it, run with it, and then I run over and I do some other stuff after getting off a plane, and then I fly back and then go back to just, and it's great. It's really cool, and there are a lot of designers that are doing this, so I'm definitely not the only one, but. I have to relinquish control. I have to take the hands off the patient. Ooh. I have to take the hands off the patient. I can't program anymore. So Andre Petrus, Aaron Luke, Dan Norman, and Ian Haslauer, if you're listening, I'm going to listen to your advice and stop programming as much as I can, which just pains me to say this. Ooh, that's I just a tough declared one. it. Declared it. You all heard it right here. Done. I'm still, I still really want to know the MA3, though. I'm not going to stop. I have to know that console, oh. like, backwards and forwards. Yeah. There's so many things that are <laughs> becoming available and possible with that. <sighs> it's hard. I really love programming. Anybody who's listening right now, you can't see the pain in Sooner's yeah, eyes right like now. Excruciating. Actually, do you have a pop blood vessel in my eyes, so maybe it's from that, thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's from that damn cold everybody's got. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you have mm-hmm. progressed very far that you've actually been able to kind of separate your ego and your own desires in order to provide the best service and the most artistic impact that you can. That's, uh, I don't know how many other people have progressed this far, and it's, it's really inspiring to see it. Oh, my God, so many. Are you kidding me? There's so many badass designers out there that are like, God, Roy Bennett, jeez. Insanely talented, insanely creative, like can totally separate it. Absolutely. Baz, jeez, goodness. I mean, I could go on. I could list. I could list so many people that I'm just like I bow down to. Like you're insanely talented and creative, and how do I get to be that cool? Your your humility precedes you. Uh, I think maybe I just. Oh hi, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Just. Uh, I see it. I'll, I'm, I should have uh, prefaced that by some of the people at the, that level are amazing. I'm seeing a lot of people on the up and coming who are trying to get to that level and they're still stuck in the... Patience. The ego route. The yeah. rut. Well, unfortunately, and the thing is, like, I definitely had that... Like, in my mid to late 20s, for sure, I definitely, you know... And I think a lot of, I think there's just a phase that happens in your mid to late 20s where you definitely have just gotten out of college and you're like, I know so much more, you know, I, it's okay. Like everybody goes through it. It's a cycle of life, I think. Like that's just, I think they even teach that in like psychology courses in college mm-hmm. about how like that period of time in your life, you definitely think you know way more than you do. And, but what comes from that is humility because you probably get knocked down a couple times or you make a mistake and you learn from it but that is just a part of it you have to go through that that damn drum coaster (laughs) you have to go through that phase of trial by fire or like you know messing up making a mistake or you know saying this is my way it's my way or the highway and then somebody saying no actually it's my show you know you have to go through that for sure those are very wise words yeah and if you don't go through it and you just instantly are like super humble and like end up doing like winning life and then please tell me your secrets because <laughs> I've definitely cried in corners. <laughs> Many, I'm totally cool with saying it. Yep. 
But every time I did, I got back up and I was like, okay, let's just do that a different way this time. You know, that's the way it happens. Right on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Suna. I really Thanks. appreciate you making time to come and see us down here on the show floor thank at NAM. Thanks. It's been great. I feel like we've totally monopolized your, your ability Yo. to go see all the drums and the, and the guitars and the trombones. That's and the, okay. And I need the, the clarinets. I got to go see the clarinets, actually. We will definitely clarinets. make sure that you have time to do that. Played clarinet. Yep. Thank you so much. This has been Chris Lose and Suna Ruthier on the show floor at NAM 2020. Thanks, this podcast guys. has been brought to you by PLSN and TimelessJobs.com. Thank you so much.